0: Hello beautiful people. Welcome to the courage to change a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lassingame and I am your host today. We have Jay Schiffman. Jay is passionate about issues of addiction and mental health, a speaker, writer, consultant, coach, and advocate. Jay lives intentionally around seeing the realization of his dream to end stigma around issues of addiction and mental health. Jay works with individuals and organizations to make real change in how they approach, act on, and talk about mental health and addiction. A graduate of Northern Kentucky University, Jay is 10 years in recovery and lives with his wife, Lauren, and their dog, Nell, on Daniel Island, South Carolina. You can learn more at his website, www.jshiftman.com. Jay is currently writing a book, Profiles and Change, that focuses on the untold stories of people doing new, unique, and interesting work aimed at the issues of the addiction and mental health epidemic we currently find ourselves in that grew out of his tri-weekly posts on LinkedIn and his website. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Schiffman was an absolute pleasure. This is the first person we've had on the podcast who defines his recovery a little bit differently and is not a member of a 12 step program. I thought it was really important to get his perspective and talk about different ways that people can get sober and stay sober in recovery for long periods of time. I hope that all of you come into this with an open mind and leave with much more information and inspiration than you started with. Please feel free to reach out to us or to Jay for more information. We would love to hear from you. All right, guys, enjoy this amazing episode. Episode 48, let's do this. Jay, where are you located right now?
1: I live in Daniel Island, on Daniel Island, a suburb of Charleston, South Carolina.
0: Oh, god, I love Charleston. <laughs> how it so how big is the island?
1: Not large. We have uh two main strips of, you know, business district and everything else around it is apartments and and houses. It's a small suburb, but it's um it's nice. We love we love it here. We've been here since August and uh, it's just removed removed enough that we can sort of feel you know, a sense of of relaxation, um, but just close enough that, you know, we can we can drive within twenty minutes anywhere we need to go. And yesterday we biked up to our grocery store to, to get some stuff. And so it's it's nice. It's it's my wife describes it as living in Pleasantville, which is very very accurate. But uh, we we love it.
0: Yeah, nothing wrong with living in Pleasantville. Are you from South Carolina?
1: I'm not. I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. We moved here, my wife and I, she's from this area, and, and we moved here to be close to her family. Uh, last summer, as a member of her family, went through a health situation, and you know, we kind of decided that if we were ever going to live near her family, we had been living near mine, that uh, now was the time. So we came down.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And uh, how does it compare? How does South Carolina compare to Ohio?
1: Very different. You know, the, the the weather is is unbelievable. It's been beautiful since we got here. Obviously we got here right at the end of summer, so we're we're a little apprehensive about next summer. But it's uh, it's been really nice, you know, when when everybody else in, in Ohio was going through blizzards in the in the Winter I was like, oh no, I have to put on a sweatshirt. This is this is horrible. So uh but you understand being in California, right? That's, that's- I do.
0: That is. It is. It's something that we uh that my husband and I talk about when we, if when we talk about ever leaving California is like that once and you'll see, once you adjust to that that putting on a sweatshirt feeling, it is so, and, and your temperature will actually change your, your tolerance for temperature will change. And so what will feel cold to you will change. And it's a, it's definitely an
1: adjustment. I believe it. I don't miss the the winters and it's, I hate, always hated snow. So it's nice being away from that. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, that's definitely a, uh, one of those things you have to learn to love if you're going to live in a climate like that.
1: And it's true. I will say the one thing that has been very different for us is, you know, when I was in Cincinnati, I started this work that I do now. That journey kind of started five years ago, but the actual work itself was about a, about a year ago. And it was received incredibly well in Cincinnati. There really wasn't that much, oh, let's not talk about it. You know, it was, you had to push, don't get me wrong. I mean, people weren't like, yes, let's talk about mental health or addiction, but you had, you could have the conversation. Whereas here, there's so much of that Southern, oh, bless your heart. You know, like, let's not talk about these things. And that's been tough. That's been tough to get used to. And it's been a struggle for me to find people who are willing to not run away from that conversation. And that part has been more difficult.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was smiling because I was just listening to a comedian who, she's from South Carolina, and she was talking about how, like, if a Southern person says, bless your heart, they're not being nice. And oh, no. Like, like oh, a whole no. joke about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and there is some of that in the Midwest, too. I, actually, I wrote this scathing uh, letter to the editor Couple years. I used to work in politics. That was my life. And about somebody in a different part of the state who was just a whore. I mean, as backwards on. You know beliefs as you could be. This isn't even a political thing. This is like you know things that things that gay marriage brought about. You know all that kind of horrible stuff, right? And her response to the paper was, "Oh bless his heart." And I was like, "Oh, that got under her skin." That was shots <laughs>
0: fired. Shots yeah. fired.
1: Oh my god. Yeah. So I'm used to that, but but it is, it is down here. It it is a different breed of people. Just. You know, even people in the industry going, that's just not how we do things. You got to, you got to keep it under wraps. And I'm just like, I don't do that. Like, I'm from the north where you get shit done. And down here, this, let's go at a snail's pace. Let's be polite. Like, I just don't have time for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, (laughs) it's so, it's so funny. Well, it's, I don't know if you're familiar. I think, is it Al Anon or Overeaters Anonymous? And one of them, there's a common saying where they say, bless my heart as like a, like a nice, like a, like, oh my gosh, there's my disease or there's my addiction or there's my mental illness. And it's supposed to be like a gentle, like a gentle thing you say to yourself, like, oh, I'm being, you know, okay, this is who I am. And so For me, not having any of my husband's from Texas, which he says is not the South, uh, which it's
1: its own thing. Right. Texas is its own thing.
0: Apparently, I'm like, no, it's the South. Um, But whatever. So. I thought that it was like a, a kind Southern thing you say. So I'm just learning that. I was going to say I'm learning it's a fuck you because yeah. I, I don't want to tell every, all these women who are like, Oh, bless my heart, like, yeah. man. We should really, uh, you guys should really learn what they're, what that, that means.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's the Southern screw off. like, you've, you've pissed me off, which is, you know, it's it's fun. I, I I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay, so you give us a little background on Jay. Where how, where did you grow up? What was your your early life like?
1: You mean we can't just talk and commiserate about our mental health the, for the entire uh, episode of this? I mean, the... <laughs> we we can't.
0: We can, but here is what I always say. You know, yeah. like, and, and this is why. This is actually my pitch about the podcast in general, right? Which is that the fact that I don't drink and don't do drugs. Okay. I follow the laws. I am nice to my husband and my children most of the time. And I, you know, I don't steal. I don't hit people. That's only impressive. If you know my background, (laughs) otherwise it's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Right? Like I am not an impressive human being unless you know where I came from. Because Pretty much, that's the that's like what most people are expected to do, right?
1: Yeah, but I, I gotta disagree. I mean, you're, you're okay. right, that's okay, what yeah, no are disagree to do, okay, but not enough people do it. That's number one, and number two, like you've created one of my favorite podcasts, which means <laughs> that you are an impressive person, you're a very good interviewer, so. I would not sell your sh- yourself short like that. But well,
0: thank you. Thank uh, I,
1: I get what you're saying, and I agree with you. And it's why whenever I speak publicly, one of the first things I do is sort of give a condensed, or if I if I have a long time, a longer version of my story. Because you're right; it does it does put it in context, and it makes it right. easier but- to understand. Like you know oh, what I'm doing now is great. And, but what I'm doing now in the context of where I was 10 years ago is like, oh, holy shit. You know? So it definitely makes it more impactful.
0: And I personally am someone who, you know, I really appreciate things in context much more. One of the things I experienced I had with when I was dating my husband early, like freaking decade ago. And I remember the first time I went home with him and met his family and saw where he came from and seeing him in context. I remember there were so many things that super pissed me off about him that we would. they were just like, I could murder you over these things, but seeing it in context of why and where he came from and like, he grew up a Jehovah's witness and in Jehovah. Yeah. And in Jehovah's witness culture, you keep secrets, you don't, like, there's all this crazy stuff that goes on around, like, you will be publicly humiliated if you keep someone else's secret, like, you're held responsible, like, and accomplished after the fact, and accomplish after the fact. And so, like, all this weird stuff that he did that really just got under, I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Like, it's people in context, I just have so much more compassion for them. And so what's been so fun for me about this is, like getting people in context.
1: Well, I, and, and that makes, that makes perfect sense. This is it, again, this is something that I've t- i actually talk about when I speak is that our brains, like that's how our brains work is that it, uh, we like, we understand in story, right? So if you, so when I first started talking about my experience, actually, I would put it in context of like, let me tell you about, you know, the time I, how I finally graduated school. And then I would talk about being struggling with addiction, or let me tell you about my marriage. And those things are amazing. Don't get me wrong. Obviously, I love my wife very much. But the real story is that I'm still here. And so that's harder for people to understand if they don't have that to relate to. And it's, it's a it's more of a it takes more of an effort when I speak now, because I have to weave a story as opposed to let me just tell you things because by the end like they may get it but they don't get it but if you can tell that story in an effective way and help the person's brain internalize then they're like oh 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 shit you know what (laughs) i mean right right, so it, it definitely takes more work when you're writing and when you're speaking but you have more of an impact that way
0: and it's the fun thing that comes with podcasting because you can do the long form and really like get this, st- you know, people can listen to it in chunks and whatever. And like, you really get, you know, even cause I, like in pitches that we do, the longest pitch I do is an hour. And, and usually I'm only talking for, what, 40 minutes, right? So like the, you know, so you don't that, that only 40 minutes of someone's story is definitely going to be condensed into right. less context.
1: And then I even tell mine, you yeah. know, in 15 minute chunks. And so you oh, take oh, that yeah. and it's like, the worst is
0: five minutes. I can't do oh,
1: it's So, I mean, there's that, there's that famous quote, right? Where it's like, you have me talk for an hour and I'm good. You want me to talk for 15 minutes. I got to prepare for a month because trying to get that, Story condensed is only half the battle. Getting it condensed to a way that still leaves my message and my point, like that's hard.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So tell us, t- give us Jay in context. Tell me about. Tell me about jay
1: so i was born in cincinnati ohio uh, the oldest of four boys to oh
0: bless to, her, brothers,
1: her oh i know she she i, kept mean, trying. That,
0: I mean that in the california way <laughs>
1: <laughs> she yeah she she kept trying for a, a daughter and it didn't happen all all boys and we're all boys within six years so we're all very close in age why they kept trying so much, I couldn't tell you. I've seen pictures. They claim they were loving it, but I've seen pictures of each of them holding a kid, and they don't look like they're loving it. They look exhausted. So, um, you know, they will definitely hear this. And mom and dad, I see you. I don't get it, but I see you, and it's appreciated. <laughs> so I was the oldest of, of four boys, born in 1986, so I'm 33 now, and really loving household. You know, we born and raised Jewish, so had a very community-based, like, tight-knit family. One set of grandparents lived right down the street. You know, I had cousins that lived 10 minutes away. We were all very close uh, growing up. And, you know, that was – it was it was great. Like, I don't remember – unfortunately, I don't remember a lot of my childhood. You know, whether it's because I erased all those memories with drugs, I'm not sure, or if it's just, like, you know, time time sort of compressing some of it. But But what I do remember is very happy – born into privilege. My my family business goes three generations back. It's a, a pretty pretty big deal in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a it's a business that spans five continents. Five continents what is that? My dad would be very disappointed. He's the executive or CEO now. He'd be very disappointed that I can't remember how many continents. <laughs> uh, it's a chemical manufacturing business. The easiest way I can describe it is, do you remember when the Share a Coke campaign came out when everyone had their names on a Coke? Can, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So Hewlett Packard printed those labels, but they could not for the life of them figure out how to get the labels to the, the ink to stay on the labels. And my family's business has the, the product that made that work. And so, uh, it's a random business, but someone's got to do it. And it's been in my family now for three generations. And so, because of that, we, you know, were born into privilege and went to the finest schools in Cincinnati and went to. Great colleges. I, I always, you know, was never wanting. We were not, you know, we weren't buying up the town, but we also went to great schools and we also had everything we ever wanted. So really, really privileged in that way. A lot of great friends, a couple of whom are still, you know, friends to this day. When I got married a couple of years ago, half of my groomsmen I had known, you know, since at least middle school, so a long time. And pretty typical childhood in that respect. I was an athlete. I uh, was very committed to that. I was a baseball player and actually almost played in college. So that was that was important to me. But as I got older, again, this is the late 80s, mid-90s, I, like many people from my generation, were put on prescription pills for ADHD. I actually, I have the stats. It's something I talk about a lot. When I, uh, the year after I was born in 1987, there was like 300,000, 350,000 Children that were given stimulants in effort to treat ADHD. By the time I was put on pills, uh, 10 years later in, in 1997, uh, at the age of 11, that number was 2 million. I mean, this was a living, breathing experiment, This gen- my generation, and that's still going on.
0: It I just want to drop in and say that it was mostly, that it was majority boys too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's 100%. And, and when I've started telling my story now as an adult, There were two guys who I I didn't know this at the time had very similar stories and we all were in one class together in high school and none of us knew the other one was going through this. And so as an adult, both have reached out to me like, "Yo, I had no idea and my story is very similar to yours, you know. So that was sort of how I got started on this. There's a lot of, of research that's been done to sort of tie that together with a lot of, of struggles with, with uh, substances as adults. And, you know, it's because we know now that if you inundate a brain before the age of 15, before the age of 20, there's more likelihood of struggling with addiction. And here I was as an 11-year-old kid being given high rates of chemicals like, well, no shit. I'm going to struggle with something. You know what I mean? So unfortunately for me, mine was all prescribed I, uh, you know, like every other kid, I smoked weed a couple of times and I drank a couple of times, but I was so dedicated to being an athlete. Uh, I ran cross country. It was something I was very proud of. I was very good at cross country. I was a really good baseball player. These were things that were important to me. So I was, I didn't do anything in high school. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink like all the, I experimented in middle school, but I gave it all up. And I was like, I'm going to dedicate myself to being an athlete. But the problem was here I was being given things that were 10 times higher by, you know, someone being prescribed, all being prescribed to me.
0: Right. On a regular basis.
1: Exactly. Then anything, you know, I could have smoked weed once a week and it wouldn't have done nearly any damage to me like this was doing, you know? So when I was in my mid teens, I'd been on ADHD medication for four or so years. My therapist, who I now have been seeing for about half a decade, great guy. I thought um, I, I you know, really developed a close relationship with him. He was cool. He was a really well-known therapist in Cincinnati, Ohio. He he still is very community active. He said I was showing signs of a mood disorder. And, you know, in your teens is when some of that stuff can come up. And, you know, we didn't question it. We said, OK, let's, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. So I didn't really push back on the medication thing. I got off it for a couple of weeks in high school because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be on medication anymore. And it didn't have that much effect on me, but it had enough that sort of my inability to focus. I was that t- typical class clown. I was the guy who was more, you know, I- interested in making people laugh and doing really well in school. And so when those things started to override my grades and all that, I got back on medication like two weeks later. But by my late high school, he was really saying, you know, you should be we should be talking about this this mood disorder issue. And I had had some struggles with depression when I was younger. I still do. Struggles with anxiety when I was younger, still to much, much lesser extent, but I still did. I struggled with a little bit of OCD. And so these things were very minor, but they were blossoming. And, you know, there was never, or at least I don't remember, there ever being a discussion like, is it possible that these drugs are making these things worse, right? So... You know I graduated high school I didn't I was not a good student ever. That's just I, I just didn't learn well I, I wasn't a good student in high school, wasn't a good student in college just was not something that I was great at. but I went to one of the nice schools in Ohio, the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, which is a, a very well respected small school. and by this time I was being prescribed pills for these various issues as well. So not only was I on, ADHD medication, but I was also being prescribed things for anxiety. For you know, being prescribed pills for what you know he believed was this mood disorder. So I go to college my freshman year, and that's when shit really started to get bad. And uh, I got arrested in my my freshman year for dealing weed. When I my baseball career finished, I had no reason anymore not to experiment with other drugs. You know, that was the reason that I didn't before was that I was this athlete. And well, like I said, I had an opportunity to play in college, but it was only one school that wanted me and I didn't really want to go there. So I went to this other school that accepted me instead. And when my baseball career ended, I was like, all right, well, now I can do those things that I had never, never really uh, had much experience with. So I drank a lot you know, I was a typical idiot college kid. I was drinking a lot. I was smoking a lot, trying other drugs as well. But all this time I'm on, you know, my base level is already a lot higher than everybody that I'm hanging out with because I'm on multiple medications as well. So, you know, call, freshman year did not go great. I had a lot of good friends and, you know, all that was good. But like I said, I got arrested for dealing. My roommate and I w- were dealing together like a lot of weed. At one point, we had like half the college was coming to us for for weed and we got busted right around Thanksgiving of our freshman year. Like I said, I'd been there for like two months at this point, you know, three months and I already get arrested for for selling weed. So, you know again we were very lucky being these privileged you know white kids that we were we were able to get good lawyers and this it's not on my record anymore but it was it was still a, a, an issue here i was a couple months into my college career and i'm getting arrested for the first time and i'd already you know i was the kind of kid who I wasn't a, a rebel you know but i i i had my license taken away for, for speeding in in high school and, you know, got suspended a couple of times for once for fighting a kid and, you know, stuff like that. So my parents were justifiably, my parents were justifiably concerned, but all this time, you know, I'm still seeing this therapist back in Cincinnati. We're talking by phone once a week and he's prescribing different medications and higher rates of, of, these medications But at the end of my freshman year, I left Worcester. I transferred back to University of Cincinnati because if I hadn't, I would have failed out. So again, not a great student. Did not take college seriously. Was partying my ass off. Had a wonderful time, but was was not doing well in school. Uh, Came back to UC, and that didn't change. Uh, You know, I I didn't have the skills to be a good student. and again, I'm just on all these crazy amounts of, of chemicals as it is. So sophomore year, uh, I ended up joining a fraternity, which gave me even more license to to party and, and not go to class. And, you know, those guys, a couple of them are still very close friends. And we all did that together. You know, it was not I, I felt very communal for not going to class, for drinking, smoking, you know, doing a lot of shrooms and stuff like that, like multiple nights a week because we were all doing it together together and i ended up failing out of out of university of cincinnati my sophomore year so at that point you would think that there would be like all right maybe this is a a moment where i can stop and and okay okay things have gone off the rails but i wasn't there yet you know i hadn't i hadn't reached my moment by this point though the the symptoms uh, that my therapist had said were part of you know now we're calling it bipolar disorder are flourishing just you know my ocd is off the charts i'm cleaning a lot non-stop i'm having like nightmares because i'm on so much chemicals and mixing with all sorts of stuff
0: can you tell us what you were on like what, yeah give us an idea
1: so i meant to pull out the records i have the records here i i, I went back and like walgreens and and cvs i basically filed open records requests for my own uh, stuff and i have pages i was on i counted i was on 10 different medic over 10 different medications throughout this time Concerta was the one i was on for my adhd so that was i had gone through the spectrum of adhd medications starting with ritalin as everybody doesn't go all the way up to Concerta, and we settled on that one by my late by my early 20s I'm also taking Ambilify. I'm taking Clonopin, uh, which was my real like that's the one that I really had a problem with.
0: What were you taking that for? What did they say that what did it what did when they were like you should be on Clonopin for X? What, did, what yeah,
1: was it Yeah, so X? the Clonopin was for the anxiety. Anxiety. Okay. And then there was, you know, things like Ambilify and a couple others that were the mood stabilizers. When I was I'm, you know, later I was put on lithium and other even more high power but at my worst, I was on uh, – I think I was prescribed – it was either five or six different chemicals at one time and 1,300 milligrams a day of chemicals that were prescribed to me. And then I was abusing every single one of those on top of the prescriptions. I was. I went from – when I was 11 and were, was first put on Ritalin, having to hide uh, my, my Ritalin in a banana to swallow because I, my throat was like, no, we're not going to do that, to – by the time I'm 21, 22, I'm popping handfuls of clonopin without water. You know, I tell people that if you've seen the sh- the, the show House, the way Doctor House takes his his Vicodin, that was me on clonopin. It was so bad at this point. I'm 21. I went to Israel with my fraternity brothers. We were the Jewish fraternity, so we all went on our birthright together, uh, which is the trip that uh, that young Jews get the opportunity to take. In in this was let's see, that would have been. I was 21. That would be 2007. So we all went on together and I got stopped by security going through New York and JFK because I'm carrying a backpack that uh, had Bob Marley's face on it. There's pictures of this on, on Facebook. And the only thing in the backpack is canisters of pills, just nothing else, just pill canisters. And they pulled me out and they said, "This, <laughs> there's no way you're not a dealer. <laughs> like, who does this, you know? And I was like, no, those are all mine. You can look. My name is on every single one of them. And I was searched. I mean, like, I don't blame them, right? If you see, <laughs> totally. if you totally. see this kid, yeah. and by the way, I was a full, full-blown hippie with a fro. I know you can't see it right now. I got my head shaved, but I used to have a full-blown uh, fro. I'm carrying a backpack with Bob Marley's face on it full of pill canisters. I would search. that.
0: Kid. Right, 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 right. Yeah. You weren't, you weren't exactly like what we would call under the
1: radar. Not at all. No. So that should have been a red flag, but it wasn't because, you know, I wasn't taking any of these. I, I was trusting. I wasn't taking any of these red flags for what they are. And I was trusting my therapist who told me I needed all these things. So, you know, that pattern continues where, where, the symptoms continue to flourish. My anxiety is off the charts. My chart, my, my mood is up and down. There's no stability whatsoever. That The, the low-level things, my inability to concentrate, my OCD are all blooming. And I feel like at some point I had to have said to him, why is it that these are not helping the things that I'm supposed to be getting better at? But their answers were always, you know, we need to find the right cocktail. We need to get you in the right... Dosage. I mean, the same answers we hear all the time, and I want to put make this perfectly clear that I do believe that there are people that these help. Like I'm not one of those people. Like all pills are evil. You know, that's I'm not a doctor. Who am I to say that? And I was on a podcast six eight months ago where the person made that point, and I was like, I mean, like I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to say that there aren't people who can be helped with this. I know people in recovery who are on medication. I know people who aren't in recovery who are on medication. I'm just saying that people in this industry are people and they're fallible and people make mistakes, you know, and I was one of the people that they failed.
0: It's, it's a really good, I, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that you made that point. I, I think, so I've been on both ends of that where medication has very much in my adult life helped me. I'm on medication it's helped me tremendously it helps me tremendously and i was you too you and i were born the same year so we went through that same you know similar thing i wasn't the boy that they had to calm down so he could sit through class but i was definitely the like oh do you have a mood disorder oh do you have this oh do you have you know whatever and and through my teens i mean I have I, been put on and, and diagnosed with every, like, I like you pulled up all the records of everything I've ever taken. It's alarming. And, and here's one of the reasons why because there is no way to say, okay, take this blood test or we're going to do this, you know, chemical testing and see what there are, I should say there are ways, but it's not used. So there's basically what you do is you come in and you say, I have these symptoms and they go, Hmm, right." I, th- I think l- this sounds good, right? That whatever's top of mind. And I have been to so many psychiatrists who I know because you and I ba- probably both now have a, you know, basically could probably be pharmacists, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, people call me and ask me about medication. I'm like, you do realize every advice I'm going to give you is not, I'm not a pharmacist, but, and then I drop into like, but if you ask yeah. me and the amazing, th- you know, they would, it's, it's just kind of a like, okay, we're going to drop it five milligrams. Okay. We're going to increase, you know, it's a, it's a total,
1: right.
0: it's a total chemical experiment. Like you said. And it's happening for me, that chemical experiment, like with you, happened when I was very young, for me more as a teenager than than when you were, you know, a little kid. But there's an article that I think, um, if people are interested, that really relates to what you're talking about, and it's called The Drugging of the American Boy. And as you said, there is absolutely a population out there where these drugs really help people. I mean, I know border, uh, bipolar people where this is just, I mean, they come off their meds, they're different people. However, we have started this and there's so much literature on this. I encourage anyone interested, if people are interested in more information about it, feel free to email me. There's so much literature out there about, about what happened with UJ. And it's, it's about making little boys in particular, but making children docile enough To be educated in large classrooms, sitting, um, being taught by lecture, and that it has because our schools are set up in that way, which is a industrial revolution, you know the way that that it was taught, and and it has led to kids who cannot sit through that, or you know don't have the personality to sit there, listen, absorb that way. medicated. And that's that, I mean, that is what you're talking about. That is what happened to you through and through. And then whatever symptoms and side effects you had as a result of the original, whatever that original symptom that was meant you were medicated for, right. You know, anxiety is also a side effect of Ritalin and of amphetamines in a 10 year old boy. So, right. So you start off this, this chain reaction. And that, I mean, that's really what it sounds like is a huge part of what happened for you.
1: Oh, totally. And and I'm really glad you make that point. I, I had, it's funny, I had that very conversation with a friend probably uh, six or so months ago where we were having lunch and he told me that his son who was seven, they had recommended that they put him on on Ritalin. And he said, I wanted to ask you because this sounds like your experience. I said, yeah, I was 11. Your son is 7 you know, look, I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. I can just tell you what happened to me. And I personally, if I had a child today, would not put them on medication because I lived through it. And I know how badly it screwed up my brain. And I completely agree with you. It's It's unfortunate that we are unwilling to challenge some conventional beliefs on education and instead would rather tinker with humans. Now, look, again, I've not spent decades studying the American education system. I can't tell you what needs to change. I can tell you one of those can be tinkered with safely. The other one is literal human beings. Why we went that route, couldn't tell you.
0: Because it's easier than changing an entire system and, and, you know, and you can blame it on that individual. And I mean, so many reasons, there's a, there's a wonderful book called creative schools. And I highly, if you have a child, you're listening to this and this is what you're going through. I highly recommend checking it out because there are a lot of options for kids who can't sit through a lecture at seven years old. And I I too, I have a, a dear friend of mine who I love so much, who whose son, they got him into this amazing school and, you know, struggling sitting still. And they're like, look, you either put him on medication or he can't go to school here. And that's the, you know, I mean, I totally get it. Like, it's not a judgment. I understand. And I, am sure that there are a group of children who really do benefit and need it. So it's a, it's not a black and white decision, but your story is a cautionary tale, right? Which is like, are we looking at all the components? Are we look, is this the best school? Is, are they, are they meeting J where Jay needs to be met? Is, as you know, it, it's not like you weren't getting enough exercise. You weren't, you know, the, are we, engaging Jay is Jay super bored in college and want, you know, like, I mean, what are you supposed to do if you are super bored in college, everyone is partying and drinking and you're in a frat or you know what I mean? Like, what, what are you supposed to do? What, if you, if you don't have any drive, you're, you're like, we really just don't address these things. And then you add in the fuel to that fire. And, you know, we have Jay at 23 cleaning, whatever you were cleaning.
1: (laughs) Well, and and you make an excellent point that two things. One, we deal in black and white too often in situations that are nothing but shades of gray. And and I mean that both for this, what we're talking about, the education system, and also that's how I approach being in recovery. And uh, when it comes to helping people enter recovery, we say either you do this or you do that, there's nothing else. And it's like, in reality, maybe three percent is positive, you know, black, three two percent is white and everything else is shades of gray. We don't have an answer for ninety nine point nine percent of the things that we have in our life. There is not an ironclad answer. And yet our brains and the way we approach things are black and white, either this or that. And we need to do more of that shades of gray thinking. And that was number one. And number two is just having these conversations, like you were saying, to address some of this beforehand. If I had known, you know, that I had mental health issues that ran in my family. Maybe we approach this situation different with when 14-year-old Jay is getting a diagnosis of a mood disorder. Maybe we don't. Maybe we get a second opinion. Maybe we don't. But we didn't talk about these things. I don't blame my parents whatsoever for any of this, That they the path they followed. I would have probably done the same thing. I would like to think that going forward, if my wife and I choose to have kids, that If there was a situation like this, we would take all tools in the toolbox and come up with some kind of a solution and we would have the conversation. Like, what are you feeling? What is happening? And that didn't happen. I don't just mean for me. I just mean we aren't doing that, period, because people are shying away from conversation.
0: We're we're shying away from conversation. But, you know, in in the case of like a case of my friend, uh, say, right, where he has this son, because I, you know, just watching this being, you know, and I have little, little kids, right? So I haven't been in this situation and I don't know what that's like. So I don't want to cast judge. I don't want it to seem like I'm casting judgment. But what I saw was an impossible situation, right? With a family that got their kid into a great school and they have a younger son, both parents work. And because that's what's, you know, that's what happened. That's what how life looks often now and the choices were that the professionals are saying this needs to happen. The child does not have answers for what is going on. And the alternative is to what, like go to find some really innovative school that's not nearby, you know, like the, the, the turn, like none of it is, these are horrendously difficult, complicated choices. And, and the reason for that is that it's easier in general for everyone to just sedate or you know, our version of sedate. I, I hate to say sedate with amphetamines, but you know, so it, it's easier for us to put a band-aid on that one thing as opposed to be really proactive about it and upend everyone's lives, right, right. and yep. and I think that's the scary part, right? That's this the scary part is like these parents are being put in impossible situations and there aren't that many resources. And so we're asking people to go hunting for them. And this is the accepted method. And I just, I think that you're, and I love, love, love that you're talking about gray areas. So I want to say this too, on this podcast, because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs, right? We hear a lot of those people. And that does not mean that those are easy accesses for me. And so we're really working to get a lot of other stories. And I know a lot of these people who have these incredible stories. So that's how, but I do want to say that there are a lot of ways to get sober. I would say skin a cat. I hate that saying, but you know, (laughs) but um, I'm like, who came up with that? But, um, but you know, there are a lot of ways and types of sobriety and, and really the true goal for every single one of us is to have a, Happy and healthy, better life. And that's exactly right. However, we get there, and if it works for us, if it's working for us, then that is success. Success should not be defined. My success and your success don't have to look the same.
1: That's beautifully put.
0: So tell us, tell me about, because I know you, so you, 1,300 milligrams. Bob Marley, you're going on birth, right? You're seen in the holy, holy land.
1: Uh, (laughs) I want to say I was just actually over the weekend, I was catching up on some of the last couple episodes and you had a quote in one of the last episodes where you said that, you know, there's this line and I guess it's AA, but uh, about you know, I wouldn't trade my my worst day in recovery for my best day using and how much bullshit that is. And I want to say you said that and I was sitting on my couch howling because I was like, Thank you. Thank you for saying that because that is so much bullshit. Like, don't get me wrong, the lowest of my lows when I was when I was using are just like I never want to go anywhere close to that again. But the highest of my highs were incredible. So incredible. whoever said that is just wrong. <laughs> <I'm>
0: outright wrong. <laughs> outright wrong. I don't know. Whoever said that was not using
1: I 100%... Or they, weren't, they weren't... Like, what are you in recovery from? Because you clearly weren't having fun at all when you were doing it, if that's your line.
0: Maybe they just, like, did not figure out how to... Like, they, they always overshot the mark. So it was exactly. always like, a vomiting situation. <laughs> I don't know. They, someone they asked. There's a lot of people with a lot of experience in this area. I'm not sure how they got that, but I do. I can't. When I heard that, I was like, "On what planet 100%. would I not trade my worst day in recovery for my best?" Like, yeah, those two things are not. But, but, and like I, you know, talked about it was like, but we're talking about what I would trade. Like, would I trade my life?
1: Right, right. No, 100%. And that definitely needs to be clarified. Neither one of us is recommending right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you go yeah. back to using, like, well, no, that, no, no, no. Yeah,
0: no, no, no. But, the, you know, those trades aren't, aren't really, no, no one's offered to trade me those things. So, so, you know, when that does happen, I'll let you know how it goes. But, yeah, I mean, you, to say, and I think this is where the D.A.R.E. program really, you know, screwed the pooch for another horrible saying, which is, you know, to not address the fact that drugs and alcohol are a lot of fun, hundred
1: mm-hmm. percent.
0: We are jumping the shark on that, Yeah, right? Definitely. Like that's that's stupid and that's not true. And to say like, oh, the first mm-hmm. time you try cocaine, you're going to overdose and die, and and it's going to be a horrible experience. Like, no, dude, you're going to think you saw God. Let's uh-huh. just yeah, let's just be <laughs> honest. Let's
1: just. Tell you know, him- I'm so glad you say that because I was just I was being interviewed like two weeks ago for this parent it was like a magazine or something and i said this and the person looked at me he's like i can't write that and i was like but you should you should talk about how we have to have honest conversations with kids yes you are going to have some really horrible moments if you abuse drugs or alcohol you're also going to have some amazing moments let's talk about how to do this safely we know you're going to experiment right we know kids are going to experiment it's the same thing with sex it's like telling them well if you show them a condom they're going to want to have sex hell no they're going to have sex anyways. Maybe we can convince them to do it safely. It's it's the same thing.
0: my they're not <laughs> Never mind. But no, the, I think if you tell children a lie about about drugs, right? You tell them it's not fun, it's horrible, all drug dealers look like this, all you know whatever. Whatever you tell them, right? And then they try it cuz they're going to, and it's a lot of fun?
1: Yeah. You are oh, you're a liar. 100%. You're no a liar no now. No credibility. None.
0: No. So, so and, and
1: we see that you had, again, someone on recently who talked about his only experience with alcohol was he knew that mommy drank it and he wasn't allowed. Of course, you're going to try it when you get older. Like right. if you tell them, honestly, yes, if used correctly, alcohol is incredible. But if used it incorrectly, let's talk about what happens. That is a much more informed child than just don't do this, but also turn your a blind eye when mom drinks, you know, three glasses of wine a night. Right. So. We have to have these conversations and we can't just shy. This goes back to what you and I first started talking about the oh, bless your heart. Well, yeah, you may feel better if you don't have these conversations, but your kid has a much higher chance of using.
0: Right, right. Well, and that's and that's sometimes you know what I am sure you talk about this too, which is like, okay, so here are your options. You can wait until this gets worse, and or you know, when I talk to parents like about sending their kid to treatment or this that, and, and they talk about how awful that is. And I actually worked with a mom this morning that was actually my call, my emergency call, where just heartbroken, mom just heartbroken, sending a teenager to wilderness and you know, what I, what we would talk about is like, look, you can send this kid to wilderness now because everything you need to know is there. Like all the signs are there. Or you can be like the other people who I've worked with who are burying their children, who are in jail, who are like, you can't, you get to decide where to intervene and how you want this to look. And the fact that we have this idea that it shouldn't be painful like we have this idea that we shouldn't have hard feelings and hard conversations like it we we should not feel discomfort let's avoid discomfort
1: yeah and it's screwing up everything and it's mm-hmm. we would rather feel okay now and deal with what's going to be worse down the road than meet, meet in the middle and handle a situation that's not great but it's not here then have and an
0: uncomfortable conversation. 100%. You know what yeah. people do to avoid an uncomfortable conversation with another human being? I mean, I know you do. Like, <laughs> it's a stupid question. But you know what I mean? Like, that is, it is astonishing.
1: Well, so the analogy I always use is like, why is it that the minute, the minute, if God forbid, you were giving yourself an exam and you felt a lump, you would call your doctor that day, right? I want to come in. I want this looked at. I'm scared. Whereas the same, the analogy you just used, we're doing with addiction. You're waiting months, if not years after that lump. Well, let's see if it grows, right? Let's see if it maybe gets worse. But That's Jay, ridiculous.
0: You have those people, Jay, you have those people though. And I know this because I look at like some weird stuff online, which is, and it's not on uh, you porn. And, um, <laughs> no, but the, uh, the people who are like, this woman came into the emergency room with a 60 pound tumor. And you're like, and she looks like nine months pregnant. And you're like, okay, let's, let's, I don't know if you've seen these things, but where you just stop and you're like, well, what happened? Can you talk to me about where, where she was at when she looked six months pregnant? Like, what is it about this? Cause there are those people. See, you and I are like, I got a lump. I got to go get it checked out. Right. But maybe it's because we're, we're members of the tribe but um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, but i i also wonder like, I also have seen people who go to extraordinary lengths and they, they, to just not deal with things. But the, those are
1: the, those are the minority, right? I mean, in, in, when it comes to something like cancer, right? Most people will go to the doctor. But when it comes to addiction, it's the opposite, where most people will avoid it and the small few will immediately try to attack this thing.
0: But do you think that's because of prevalence?
1: Uh, I think prevalence is a big piece of it. And I think stigma is also a huge piece of it where, you know, so actually great example. I had this conversation with my grandmother a week ago where I told her about some of the work I'm doing. And she said, you know, you're so brave. And I said, why? And she said, you're telling your story. And I, my my aunt, unfortunately, is also is going through cancer right now. And and I said, let me ask you something. When your daughter is in recovery from cancer, will you call her brave if she talks about it? And she said, no. And I said, but you would call her brave for living through that. She said, of course. I said, why is it different from my experience? Why is it brave for me to talk about it? But the living through it piece is, oh, I wish we could go back and fix that for you. Whereas my aunt, it's like, you know, you had to go through it, but you're stronger now and you're so brave for making it through it. But everyone talks about cancer. Why are those two things any different? Context. That's what I'm saying. It shouldn't be though. Yeah. It should be the same thing, but we're treating those two things like night and day.
0: Because people do not, this uh, This is my opinion, uh, people do not see the correlation between cancer and, and addiction. And in that, in that, with cancer, let's just say, we'll count out the ones where like, there's just, this is just a crazy situation. But with cancer, A lot of the behaviors that people engage in that are normal behaviors, like, I don't know, using tinfoil in, you know, to bake something, you know, whatever, like things that we do on a regular basis, whether that's we smoke or we're exposed to things, those things cause cancer, right? But because there's like norms around that and you're not actively participating and you're not like, it doesn't. We don't see it the same way. So cancer is something that happens to you, whereas mental health is something you do or engage. And so those two things, that's why we can't make that connection. And what people don't understand is that when you get to that place, you're using against your will.
1: (laughs) Oh, 100%. Yeah, and and that's exactly, I'm so glad you said that's exactly what I try to teach people. There is, at that point, Right, we're not talking about the kid who's smoking a blunt for the first time or even the person who does this once or you know twice a month. We're talking about the people who compulsively do this like what you and I went through. There is nothing different at that point, right? It is the same thing, but people can't conceptualize that. And again, I don't blame them. That's not how our brains work. You have to understand something.
0: Well, it sounds but, crazy too. Yeah, right. Until you've experienced it, you're like, what do you mean you what do you mean you can't not do this thing? I'm like, well, you know how you Put, know how if you're starving and then you put yourself in a kitchen, you know, like it, I mean, but it's like that, right? It's this, and it's and it's in the same part of the brain, which is you're saying, "Well, I'm not going to eat food. I'm not going to eat food." And then there's you know, there's food around, and you're trying to starve yourself, and it's not working. Like you are, even if you your will has decided, "Look, I'm not going to eat because that's just not what I'm going to do." You cannot help yourself, and that's where that comes in.
1: Yeah, I like to I like to say to that person, "Well, have you ever had an Oreo?" And they're like, "Of course." And I'm like, "Okay, how let's many talk about Oreos?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because totally. we've all been there. <laughs> we've all had the whole sleeve, and then oh, like, man. oh shit, where the sleeve of Oreos go? Totally, we've t- all been there. Totally,
0: and then you you throw out the nutrition facts as fast as humanly possible.
1: Like, I- <laughs> <laughs> Take it out to the dumpster right now. Get well, that out of my house. That's
0: a difficult conversation. I'm not willing to have. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly
1: right. <laughs>
0: stay tuned to hear more in just a moment hello everybody this is ashley Low and game the co-founder of lion rock recovery and your host lion rock recovery has introduced a support meeting specifically for people struggling with anxiety related to the COVID 19 pandemic structured as an ongoing workshop The COVID-19 Anxiety Support Meeting will teach coping skills and be a place to share and connect with others, also feeling the effects of this crisis. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. Let me repeat that. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. To view the meeting schedule and join a meeting in session, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on the orange banner at the top of the page. You can't miss it. Together, we will learn to feel more centered and empowered in the face of this great challenge. So what, how did you, okay, so with the colonopin, I mean, that is, that is a, that is a, a, so there are two substances that you can die from the detox, but believe it or not, even as horrible as opiate detox is, which let me tell you, it's real rough. um, You can't, you're not going to die from it or meth or coke. Colon, uh, benzodiazepine, Klonopin, and alcohol. Those are two that you can die from. And the combination is is uh, the real kicker.
1: Yeah. So I feel like we should I should probably get back to, tell, to the story. So by this point, I am, like I said, I'm taking handfuls. It was the thing where I knew I had a problem because anytime I had a feeling that I didn't like, my first response was, at this point, the pill bottle isn't even in the backpack. It's in my pocket you know, because the backpack was too far away. So the, the pockets right there, I get one out, and I'm popping. I mean, it was like M&Ms. I carried these things around all day. And I woke up and the first thing I did, if I didn't immediately grab for a pill, then the first thing I did, I did was had to get to the bathroom because I would start going through withdrawals. What and were I was you, spending- what, were you, what would you wake up and take? Clonopin.
0: OK, OK. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so if I if I didn't immediately take a Klonopin, I was spending the next 20 minutes, half an hour curled up on ba- my bathroom floor going through withdrawals. For sure. And then by this point, I'm spending most of my day on the couch, unable to do really anything else. But I'm also kind of the, what we were just talking about. I'm like forcing myself out of it to do the things that are still fun. None of my life. My life is completely gone at this point. But I'm going to music festivals all the time. I'm doing the things that still reminded me that there were reason to live. Uh, so that meant my job was gone. I hadn't had a job now and probably this is this uh, I'm, I'm in the spring and summer of 2009. And by this point, I've been jobless for a while. I'm out of school. I'm really not doing anything other than hanging out on my couch with the people I was living with who we were all users together, uh, different substances. By this point, I'm doing a lot of cocaine because uh, I'm smoking weed all day. I'm Uh, On all the medications, I'm abusing every one of them. And when you're on that level of drugs, what's going to cut through that besides cocaine? I mean, if I wanted to do something, if I wanted to raise my awareness to a different level, cocaine was it like that was all I had left me. So I'm doing a good amount of cocaine and I'm, I'm going to music festivals, and I had some, some great experiences, but some bad experiences. Kind of like what we were saying, some of my most amazing stories are from that period, where it's like, how do you square that circle when I am just in an awful place, and I'm also having some of the greatest fun of my life? It's tough. I mean, it's tough to explain that to, to people who don't understand. But again, by this point, things are just the worst. My My friends and family are, are, they haven't abandoned me, but I'm not like seeing them because all I'm doing is using with the people that I use with. My mother would rush over to my house on regular occurrences if I didn't answer my phone because she was sure I was dead. And it was getting really bad. And again, my therapist had all answers for this. We got to, we got to refill more. I was taking, and I have the records again from the, from the, uh, you know, CVS and Walgreens I was taking months worth of chemical of, of my pills in twelve days by this point, and he kept allowing for the re- the refill, right? Like, I mean, how you got like I, in the nineties, man? I well, so no. At this point, this is two thousand nine. Oh wow! Yeah, I, I, I don't understand how that slips by. This stuff, like yeah,
0: that's that's unusual. That's particularly for that. That was more of a nineties thing.
1: Yeah, and this is it's it's maybe again, early two thousands there's no way that he doesn't know because he's the one giving permission for this, you know? So the summer of 2009 was when everything finally, you know, hit, hit, fell apart. I went to a music festival and came back.
0: which one?
1: So there was a music festival in the Midwest called Rothbury. It was the prequel to what is now called uh, electric Forest. And for two years, instead of an electric music festival, it was a hippie band festival. And so, year two, the headliners were Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, Fish. I mean, it was incredible. Uh, some of the greatest times of my life were these two years at this music festival. And I get back from that year two and I just like, I crash. I'm, I've been on the road for about six weeks now following this band around that I love. Their name is the Ragbirds, and they'll come back up later in my story. So, Uh, I'm following them around. They went to this festival and I I went the year before. And so I went back to see them and also go to this festival again. And I'm exhausted. And so I get back and I crash. And I don't remember what the final like what pushed me over the edge. But I decided I was going to commit suicide that summer. And this is late July, early August of 2009. I'm 23 years old. And so I dump out a lethal dosage of my pills or what I think will will be on my computer. And I call a friend and I tell her, like, I'm going to kill myself. And she keeps talking to me. And while she does that, she texts some other friends of ours who rush over and stop me, which is amazing. And again, for like the third time in the story, should have been a wake up call. It wasn't. The next night I learned from that mistake and I took the pills first and then called the same Damn, friend and told <laughs> her what I did, and this time she called the cops. And I don't remember much from that night. I remember having my head slammed inside of a cop car as I was led out of my house in handcuffs. And were
0: trying to I, kill yourself?
1: Yeah. So back at this time, uh, and this is still true in some states. Like it was, it was treated like uh, an offense. So I was handcuffed. I was put in the backseat of a cop car. My head slammed against the side of a cop car. I spent the night at University of Cincinnati Hospital, handcuffed to the bed, going through uh, overdose. And, you know, I would kind of become lucid every couple of hours. And I remember very little. My, My aunt, who's a therapist, was called. My parents were out of town. And so they called her and she sat by my bed all night. And basically was just making sure that I didn't die. I mean, that was that that night. Their only goal was to make sure I was still alive the next day. Yeah. So I was kind of in and out that night. But when I finally came to my first memory is late the next day. And I'm sitting in the intake room of an inpatient care center in Cincinnati, in, in a suburb of Cincinnati. I don't remember how I got there. (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember anything else except coming to and it's like a moment from a movie where they zoom in and it was all of a sudden I was there and I looked around and I'm like, where the fuck am I? What's happening? I thought I'd die. Like I, I, you know, I tried to kill myself and uh, I'm in this place. I'm being signed in by someone. I don't remember. And I end up spending the next three weeks there across two different units at this intake at this uh, lockdown center in Cincinnati. And You know, I knew other people in the ward, one of whom was like on the party scene with me. She she and I were friends. And so, you know, I get there two days later, she comes in and she's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what are you doing here? You know, and (laughs) (laughs) so like it wasn't horrible, but it was also, you know, here I was at 23 and I'm in a lockdown unit because I tried to kill myself. And, you know. I have like weird memories of, of that time. I, I had a journal that I have not been able to bring myself to read because it's some pretty scary shit. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, I, there were some people that I, I knew, like I said, and I, I kind of got along. And two of my grandparents came to visit almost every day and, and try to keep my spirits up. And, you know, it was, it was challenging, but I wasn't, I wasn't rock bottom, even though I just tried to kill myself and all this. So I get out of there on the promise that I'm going to get sent away to this like long-term care facility. I don't want to go. I make that very clear that I don't think I need to go to this place. But again, I don't blame my parents. If you have a trained, well-respected therapist saying he needs to go to this place and then you have your son who's just, you know, out of it completely saying, I don't need to go. Which one are you going to believe? (laughs) So I get released from this in you know, lockdown unit, sent to my parents custody for a couple of weeks and then sent to this this lockdown or this um, long term care unit in Massachusetts, in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, called Austin Riggs. It's a very well respected, well known place for on the East Coast and a little bit on the Midwest. I was one of the farthest away. There was like one other person from Arizona yeah. who was there, but everybody else was was East Coast.
0: Yeah, Stockton, uh, small town.
1: Very small. In fact, it's the hometown of. Oh shoot! I'm throwing a blank on the on the artist Saturday night. What's the, traditional Americana? Norman Rockwell. Stockbridge is the hometown of Norman Rockwell, and it looks just like his oh, name. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. So it's, in it's, the beautiful,
0: it's beautiful.
1: 100%. So I get sent there, and, like, my grandmother, who is my rock, she drove me there from Cincinnati. So oh, wow. we made a trip out of it. We went to Niagara Falls. We went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. We went to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. We made this whole trip. It was kind of like a goodbye, right? I mean, we had no idea how long I was going to be there. So... I move in there on October first or second, something like that, of two thousand nine, and right away I was like, "Oh shit! Like this is this is like real." You know, there were people there. With every person I met there was incredible in their own way. There were people there with some severe uh, struggles with mental health. There were people there who were struggling with very dire cases of substance use disorder, and very quickly I started to go, you know. Those people struggling with addiction, like that looks a little more like what I'm going through. And and the people that were uh, had bipolar or other similar issues, issues of mental health, what I was supposed to be going through was not that similar. And I started to like struggle with that, you know, and the, the place was was rough. It was I've described it in writing since as that it like you like smelled like death. I mean, like it was it was dark. All the time, no matter how many lights were on, it was just dark. It's one of those places that makes you believe in ghosts. You like walk in and you're like, "Oh, this place is fucking haunted!" (laughs) Like immediately, (laughs) like you can feel it. (laughs) And it's like, what's so hard about it is like I laugh about it now, but at the time, oh yeah, it's not funny. Incredibly oppressive. And four people died while I was there, you know, and this is a beautiful place that's costing tens of thousands of dollars for me to be there. And people were killing themselves. People were one person OD while I was there. It was scary. And I got to say, and this is this is not I'm not advocating for this at all. I'm quite the opposite. I didn't buy in from day one. I pushed back from day one. And mostly it was because I wasn't buying in at this point. I started to bump up against this idea that maybe there was a simpler answer, right? Maybe there was a way for me to square this circle and it was that I didn't have these issues. Now, have I struggled with issues of depression and anxiety? Of course, but maybe my label didn't fit so well. And that was my initial struggle against this this place and they also they 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 practice some things that I don't I don't love now. Perfect example is if you've seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where they sit around in a circle. I don't remember if it was in the movie or just in the book, but where they sit around and they point out flaws in one person and they make them own up to it. Like that should happen at this place. Yeah. And you had to do it and if you refused yeah you became the target. That's
0: that's yep. They did that at my place in Utah. And it was like, it was either you or them. So it was them.
1: Yeah. And so here's the thing is that I never, I never went that route and I always push back. And one day, I ended up getting into like we were this close to fighting with one of the people, not because they were saying something about me, but because they were being so harsh about this random girl I wasn't even friends with. But I was like, and we're done and I lost it. And we were nose to nose. And the four things you couldn't do at this place, there was no sex, no violence, no drugs, and no alcohol. And so one one punch and you're gone. And I'm nose to nose with this guy, like ready to get kicked out because I could not abide by that shit. I was so disturbed watching people tear each other apart in the name yep. of quote unquote therapy. Yep. Like that was my pushback the entire time was I was going, if I'm supposed to buy into this, I'm not willing to be that person. So and there were other ways too, you know. I, I had my first therapist, and I didn't see eye to eye, so I switched to a second one who I liked. But you know, he practiced the form of therapy where you would sit there in silence until one of you spoke, and that shit bothered me because some days I needed him to be the one. And you know, we would have entire sessions to me just sitting there in silence. And then the final straw there was I became really close friends with this girl. You know, nothing ain't beyond friendship. We just we got there right around the same time, and you know, she she had a pretty severe case of bipolar disorder but we sort of developed like a kind of a brother sister thing we were both from very far away neither one of us had family close by whatever and so okay so about 2 months in was when robin williams did his last stand up special and Robin Williams, as you know, is a hero to those of us in the mental health and addiction community because of his struggles. And so she and I co led this group that night where we all got together and watched his we didn't know at the time was his last stand up special. And then we like led a group discussion afterwards. And it was wonderful. And like that was kind of, you know, sh- that was how close she and I were. And then a couple weeks after that was around Christmas time and we went shopping. There was a Walmart or Target. I don't remember where we went to a couple of towns over from Stockbridge and I had a car by this point. My parents had sent up my car and uh, we drove and went shopping and we always walked around together. We bought stuff, we didn't whatever. And that day she was like, don't walk around with me. And I was like, okay, like that was weird, but I thought maybe you're going to buy me presents. You know, like I didn't take offense to it. I was just like, that's kind of weird. So then we check out and she won't show me a single thing she's bought. And so I'm like, okay, this is, this is weird. Uh, we get back to the, the, the center and, she goes up to her room and, you know, at, we were one room apart, but I had recently moved to the James Taylor room. By the way, James Taylor stayed in Austin Riggs when he was going through his stuff. And uh, he actually wrote the song Rockabye Sweet Baby James. There's a verse about leaving the rig where he says, you know, the 1st of December was covered with snow. So it was the turnpike from Stockbridge to Boston. He's writing about leaving uh, start, uh austin Ricks. anyway i can't hear that song without crying because it's like that's my experience his last line is with 10 miles behind me and ten thousand or more to go which is like wink wink i'm in recovery uh <laughs> so i definitely identify with that song but anyway i'm in the james taylor room and she's still across the hall and i go down for dinner and i she doesn't show up and so after dinner i went up to her room and i knocked on the door and i was like hey you know, what's going on and she won't let me in. And I'm like, all right, something, something's going on here. So I sat down and started talking to her and, uh, it took three hours. It took an hour for me to get her to open the door. Then it took another hour for, for me to get, let her, for me to get her, to let me to come sit with her on the bed. And by the end of the third hour, she admitted that she was going to kill herself that night. She never told me what she had bought to make that possible that day. I, I, you know, didn't really want to know that night. But by the by the end of the fourth hour or so, she had she was okay with me taking her by the hand to the nurse's station where she told them and was taken away to the local lockdown unit, which is what happened if you were gonna kill yourself or if you tried. And that was the night I decided to leave. I said, you know, if I hadn't known her the way I did this place that was supposed to be saving all of us would have let her die. And she would have been the fifth person while I was there. And this was a a girl who was, you know, one of the most wonderful smiling people, you know, how a lot of people with bipolar are just a perfectly wonderful person. And she would have been dead. And the next day I I was like, all right, I'm going to get out of here. So the only person that would take me in at that point was my grandmother, who my my parents were like, nope, if you're leaving against your will, we're not going to take you in luckily even even though i was taken there against my will i wasn't there i wasn't committed yeah. so i was allowed to check myself out so my grandmother said all right come on come to arizona where she was living in a town called cornville uh, outside of of uh, what's it called? thank you wow you you you're on your geography
0: <laughs> i live i I've, I've been i've lived in both places
1: nice well yeah so i was going to cornville and uh, I set out the next day, uh, I set out a couple days later on, I checked myself out on December 31st of 2009, spent the, that night living on a friend's couch, a friend who had moved from in the center to a, a day unit. Uh, I, she had let me stay with her that night and then sent me off to stay with another friend of ours who had checked herself out two weeks before living in New York. So I'm driving to New York from Stockbridge and uh, I get over the bridge in New York City in Immediately, I'm t-boned by a cab. It's like right oh away. And so the thing is, that like for the normal person, that's like, well, shit, that sucks. But give yeah. me a couple of days, I'll get it fixed. Right. You know, like you said in a different episode, patience ain't a virtue of mine. And so the next day, this is uh, January 2nd of 2010. I sent out set out for Cornville, which for those of you who who don't have a geography in front of you, this is about 2,500 miles from one. It's a long way and so I'm driving through the hills of Pennsylvania by myself in a car on three wheels. And I'm driving through the hills of Pennsylvania which there are these tunnels that are just big enough for a car and a truck, a two-lane tunnel and not at all big enough if the car is being held, you know, straight on willpower alone and it's blizzarding <laughs> because it's it's January 2nd and we're in the hills of Pennsylvania. So I end up in ditches multiple times. I lose control on the highway multiple times, should not be alive. Uh, I pop that tire that I just, you know, damaged. I have to walk a mile on the side of the highway to a gas station. It's a horrible day. And at like nine or 10 that night, I've gone in 10 hours, what should have taken me about three or four. (laughs) And I finally give up. I pull off the road in a town called Johnstown, Pennsylvania, it, which is a uh, you know I never fail to mention Johnstown when I when I speak because I'm sorry if you live in Johnstown if you're listening you live in Johnstown if your grandmother's from Johnstown if I ever end up in in Johnstown again I've done something terribly wrong <laughs> uh, I um the only thing open is this dirty truck stop motel and the gas station next to it so I'm eating Pop Tarts for dinner I'm sitting on the dirty uh, carpet of this 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 truck stop motel. And that is my rock bottom moment. That's my, I, I my car is damaged. I can't drive it. I'm stuck in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, eating Pop Tarts for dinner. And that is my sort of come to Jesus moment. And you know, here I was a very religious guy. I'd just been I, I wore a, a yarmulke for over a year after coming back from Israel because I was felt so spiritual from that experience. But I had that moment where I reached out and nothing came. And that's the moment I said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to make it into recovery, it's going to be on my own back. And so that night, I was like, you can do this. You can get better. And the next day I got up, I found the only tow shop that was around they towed my car they said dude this is going to be weeks uh, i called my parents and said here's what happened i need you to wire me some money to rent another car they did i drove back to cincinnati two days later i was on a plane to cornville arizona and spent the next three months slowly stepping down because as you said earlier klonopin will kill you if you try to just cold turkey it and i wait, was on wait, wait. so much i have a question please
0: they didn't take you off the klonopin
1: so you're talking about in this facility? Yeah. No, so actually again from these notes, I, I, I open records the same thing I did from the, the pharmacies yeah, yeah, from yeah. this facility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they didn't want to give them to me. And I had to get like a lawyer yeah. to stamp something. Oh, wow. Like, okay, we have to give it to you. So I have the records and I have all of my therapist notes. And let me tell you something, if you ever want to feel just terrible about yourself. <laughs> Read what a therapist has to say about you when you are at your absolute worst. So his notes are full of questions, right? I mean, he knows I'm suffering, but he he doesn't agree with the bipolar label. He's like, this doesn't really look like that. But he's also not willing to challenge my old therapist and get me off drugs. So there's in these records – You can read the day that I come in and tell him I want to get off drugs. I've been there for a couple of weeks at this point. And he says yes, but then he coaches it and says, but only if the end result is to get on new pills. And I said, nope, not going to do that. And so that was a constant fight between the two of us where he wouldn't allow me not to get my meds or to stop taking them unless I agreed with him to stay long term and to start getting on new stuff.
0: Well, so that one of the reasons probably was that bipolar, uh, one of a, a, like a huge um, not a symptom is the wrong word, but, but people with bipolar tend to have a very hard time staying on their medication. So you had this bipolar diagnosis and you wanted to get off your medication and that's like a whole thing that goes on. So that it would be really difficult to, I could see how everybody, that would be just, you know, treading water on that one. But yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible that you didn't get off of those pills while you were there, particularly because Klonopin, it's not, I mean, that's not even the best drug for those situations. Like you could have been on all the other ones and still gotten off that and they in in a medically safe and theoretically environment
1: yeah I and mean, you know I, I think there's definitely something to be said for if I had bought in more, if I had been more of a model patient, yeah, I mean, then I'm sure and you there's wouldn't have more of a
0: treatment hello p s. like I mean
1: yeah.
0: like that's you know, you were describing all these things happening in this place and and I kept thinking, like, yeah, everybody in the place is mental illness and substance use disorder. like it's not it's going to be a complicated angry like the, the, you are so. You are totally in the right place if you have those problems and therefore should not be expected not to fight it and not like you should be, it should be expected that you're going to try to kill yourself, that you, those things, that's part of the deal. You're struggling with substance use disorder and it's the worst moment of your life.
1: Right. Yeah. And and not only that, but you've been taken out of everything, you know, and sent away to a place where everything is unfamiliar. And that is every single person in there that and there were, you know, I'm guessing there was at least 50 people in this place, if not more counting all the day, the people on, you know, have been able to leave and move into day units. So there's a lot of just, you know, painful struggle struggle going on. Yeah. And we're all in a little place together. So, you know, the food was nice. The the scenery was beautiful, but everything else was a struggle.
0: Well, and and I just the place that you went to the you described a type of therapy and treatment that is not really in play anymore. I experienced that as well. Like I said, I went to a place for nine months that did that. And, you know, you get to a place, you get, you get worn down. I mean, you just, you just get worn down to the place where like, if you keep other people's secrets, if you, you know, it's like you're in that circle and they just, I mean, they just tear you apart. And, and you, like most of us develop really the ability to to disassociate, which is really what happens because you are being torn apart you know limb by limb in these groups and so you just have to learn
1: to take that there's really nowhere to go so well you said it on an earlier podcast you said what what they're trying to do is break, break you. you yeah they're trying to break you down exactly
0: if you yeah. don't break so my experience and your experience when you don't break it's just abuse
1: Right, hundred <laughs>
0: percent right, like yeah. like I didn't break, and so what I did was I went completely inward and learned to take it, and I don't know if this was your experience, but it made it harder for me to recover later on because it made it harder for me to take to absorb the therapy and the feedback without going into that place of being like of like alarm bells and all that stuff going off because I was I w- had been in this place where I, I couldn't leave and so any feedback I was about to get or any of this mm-hmm. it was like adversarial and so when you've been in an advers- when people when you're doctors and people trying to help you and you've experienced that as adversarial it's very hard to get rid of that feeling in order and and frankly it took me a long time and then once I did I could heal but it did. It, it there was damage done.
1: Yeah, and I, I 100% agree with you. And I actually don't think I'm completely out of that yet. Mostly because you know my first experience with a therapist was a guy I trusted for over a decade and who almost killed me, and the second one was that situation. And so I actually think that I am just now, like I have my first, what I would call perfectly healthy therapist patient. Like relationship now. And this just started probably, I don't know, he, he and I first started seeing each other about six months ago. So it took me going through multiple therapists since. Again, some of these were perfectly wonderful people. A lot of that was my own going, you know, be careful because right, this right. stuff may kill you. Right. <laughs> like, they right.
0: literally you just, kill you. You just can't let that, you can't, it's so much to let your guard down. I remember trying, I remember doing um, EMDR and for trauma stuff and like they want to touch you, you know, there's t- like, you're closing your eyes or they're, t- you know, like, it's like, I can't close my eyes or like, you can't sit that close to me. I'm going to lose my shit. Like this is you're and, and I being in a group setting and having people, like I would share something and p- people would give me feedback and I would shut down because I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, I'm ready for them. And one at the same place that, you're the same the place that I went that did the same thing I you know wouldn't break and so one day they were just lobbing, you know, like you're going to die, you're going to get raped and killed and be on the side of the road. And, you know, no, your parents are just going to, you know, bury you in shame and blah, 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 just on and on and on. And then they put on Requiem for a Dream and they put me on this like tall stool, like those chairs that are like you sit at a stool, almost like at a bar. And they put me on that and they sat me probably like a foot away from the screen of the TV, and they made me sit and watch it on repeat. So like, I cannot hear that those songs. Like, I cannot hear. And they were yeah. And then at the same time, two big guys were like, "This is your life. That's you. You're the whore. But you're the this. You're the, like that whole thing." And I mean, that was in the, in our time. Like you and I, you know, I was born in eighty six. Like that was. And accepted, and I was a I was 16, so there was nowhere I can go. It was a lockdown. And at that time, that was an acceptable form of therapy. And I just want to say that is not happening anymore. Well,
1: that's good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that they don't break people and try to break them in therapy. Yeah. That's that's not the goal and is not healthy. Yeah. So yeah. That's that's wonderful. So you know, at this point, I've left that I've made it to Cornville. Yeah. And now I am sent to a therapist there not because, mostly because it's like, well, if you want to get off medication, you need to know how to do it safely. So I, you know, she was the one to tell me that I had to step down, which I started doing on all drugs. And I did clonopin last because I had heard correctly, you know, that if you come into a, a detox facility on you know, heroin and clonopin, they get you off the heroin first because it's easier. And so I was on everything else and I, I kept doing the clonopin as I stepped down everything else. And finally I got to the clonopin and I stepped down all that. And the whole process took me about uh, three, three and a half months. So I'm just oh, now fat. this month. Well, so it, yes, um, it was painful. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, I just, I mean, look, all detox is incredibly painful, but mine, was a three and a half or four a month. Basically, what I, the way I describe it for people is like: imagine you've been stabbed, and the wound is reopened every day at the center, so only the periphery heals and slowly it gets smaller. That was me in mind, body, and spirit for almost four months. But what's amazing about that is, we're, you and I are talking here on on March 30th of 2020. I, this month, I am 10, 10 years from that experience. Woo, so awesome. uh, pretty, pretty amazing. I was actually supposed, two weeks from now, I was supposed to be on my 10-year anniversary trip just by myself. I was going to uh, strike something off my bucket list. I was going to Boston to watch uh, the Celtics game from uh, courtside. I was so excited. Obviously, that's not happening anymore because of everything going on. But I was going to drive from there to Stockbridge and I was going to spend the night Mm. uh, just in Stockbridge and and see what memories came back. And that trip has been postponed. Hopefully it'll happen maybe next year. But yeah, you know, I finally entered recovery around this time in 2010. And but I think what a lot of people don't understand, and obviously you do, and I hope most people listen to this podcast, is that it's not like you take your last pill and you're like, I'm free, I'm great now. <laughs> <And> you're <laughs> like back to you're back to square one, right? If if not below if not, zero, you know what I'm totally. saying? I know you're right. Yeah. It is below zero. You're right. So. I spent I actually say that while those 3 and a half to 4 months were incredibly hard what what was harder is the next like 5 years of finally going through the personal growth and the mental growth that I should have gone through when I was a teenager and here I am in my 20s going through it because I've been denied for for a decade
0: I'm I'm picturing the person's face who is like the worst part was the next
1: 5 yeah right and and the thing is is that like we're back now to the point where people you know that we were talking about earlier that how do you square the circle of people enjoying using well it's it can be both things you know and i had a wonderful girlfriend at the time i was back in school i had jobs but inside my brain is still like healing and growing and you know there are lasting implications from this time i i struggle with uh i don't have a lot of memories from Like anything before I was in recovery, like I have bits and pieces. And when I talk to friends and family, things come back. But if you just ask me to sit down and write everything I remember about my childhood, it's not a lot. It's just mostly gone. And my therapist and I have talked about how much of that is repression and how much of that is just the drugs erase my memories. And it's 50-50 is our guess. You know, we, we really don't know. I struggle with, there are other lasting implications. I still, my, I used to be a prolific writer in high school, a buddy of mine, and I actually were in a rap group together and I can't do that anymore. I just isn't there. I still write, but it it comes in trickles instead of the water hose that it used to be. And I have to like force it out. And, and, you know, like you were saying, there's definitely the long lasting implications of going through the trauma itself, not just the drug abuse, you know, the, 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 the treatment for the drug abuse is just as bad in some ways as the drug abuse. But in, in December, on December 15th of 2012, I finally graduated college. I was, I was 20, uh, let's see, I would have been 25, 26. And the pictures of me crossing that stage, I was going nuts. Uh, I was, you know, I was so happy to be crossing that stage that they still use pictures of me of celebrating, every year to celebrate graduation. That's the picture they put up. And so every year at graduation, I went back to work for this school um, a couple of years ago. I was working in fundraising and uh, every you know uh, couple of times a year, I would see pictures of me all over campus. And it, it's so funny because I was so excited to be crossing that stage. But that day was made even more special on the six-year anniversary of my graduation on December fifteenth, two thousand eighteen, when I married my wife uh, on that day. So, you know, pretty pretty special. I always celebrate. Yeah, uh, yeah, fifteenth. And if that's not even beautiful enough, both of my grandparents walked. My grandmothers were the ones that walked me down the aisle. So I I, I went down and put them in their seats, and then went back and, and walked again with my parents. But you know, my one grandma was the one. She drove me to Stockbridge. She was one I moved in with when I couldn't go anywhere else. You know, my, my other grandparents have been so supportive. And so, you know, I really just to thank them for everything they did. They were the ones that, that I walked down. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool.
0: I, I, when I graduated college, Jay, I, I mean, I cried like, I mean, I was a desire, like inappropriate crying, you know, like there was kids who were crying and were like really excited. And then there was me who was like, did she, is she, okay. Like <laughs> she lose somebody what's happening right now. I mean, it was just like that feeling of like, this did not seem possible.
1: Right. No, a hundred percent. And, and, you know, I failed out of two schools or I failed out of one and I transferred from one before I, I failed out. And, you know, here I was, and I will say, I want to give a shout out to Northern Kentucky university because I had never been a good student. And then I went there and they showed me what it, how to be a good student, you know, and I started at Cincinnati State, a small technical college in Cincinnati and transferred from, from there to NKU. So uh, when I graduated, obviously, my parents threw me a huge party and one of our party games was name all of Jay's colleges and majors because combined there were over 10. So <laughs> uh, it was a long journey, but, but I got there and, you know, now I, as you can see, this is what I do for a living. I, I talk about this to any chance i get Uh, i write about this any chance i get i coach individuals i was on a call this morning with a guy who was struggling with some depression and some other stuff and you know we were talking about what comes next and what you can do while still you know obeying the stay-at-home orders and you know i do a lot of one-on-one coaching i do some work with businesses about setting up better and more compassionate practices at their at their office I'm the host of of my own podcast now called the Choose Your Struggle podcast, where I talk mental health and addiction. And the number one thing I try to do is educate and to end the stigma. I'll give a perfect example of, you know, not long ago, my own dad was like, you know, do people ever push back on you because you're not, quote unquote, sober and you're in recovery? And I said, occasionally, but I don't see that as a bad thing because I use it to start conversations. I'm not sober. I'm very upfront about that. I do have a drink. I can drink safely. I was very lucky you know. that, look, that's not the case for everybody. I know that. I know that there are some people that can go through what I went through and not once ever struggle with addiction. I had friends who were taking pills like I was for fun, never once had a problem. Uh I have uh, I know other people who struggled with one substance and can't have any, and that's the way their brains work mine if I hear a pill canister, something starts moving up there. I remember you know things are coming back, but I can sit with my wife and have a glass of wine at dinner and be fine and There wasn't room for that for a long time, there wasn't room for people to challenge that you, that the idea that you could only be in recovery one way, and that's hundred percent sober. And that's by going the 12 step method. And I don't ever want people to think that I'm anti AA or 12 step. It works for a lot of people. What I am anti is thinking that there's only one way to do any of this because there's not. And as you and I mentioned earlier, the right path to recovery is the path that works for you. And I have worked personally one-on-one with too many people who have failed AA multiple times and their own family is telling them it's because you are a failure. You are doing this wrong. And in reality, maybe they should try a different method. you know. But we have this idea that has been pervasive in our society that AA is the only way, and we, we have to get rid of that because it's killing people. AA is wonderful, but it's not the only way.
0: I, I, I love it. And listen, AA saved my life for real, like for real, like nothing. And, you know, I, I grew up, like I grew up in AA, all that. And, and Jay, I, I a thousand percent agree with you. I think it's really important that we focus on the goal and not, and not deciding what that needs to look like. Right. And, for me, here's the hard part. And this is the hard part about all of it, right? Because we were were talking about it earlier when it came to prescribing medication for children. Do you put them on it? You know, all those things. So here's the hard part. For me, I cannot drink safely even though, you know, alcohol, one would say wasn't exactly my drug of choice. I didn't even... To be honest with you, I didn't realize how much of my drug of choice it was because I was such a heavy drug user, but it really was my drug. I just didn't really, you know. But... And I've seen so many people try to drink safely and not have that work. That's where that comes from, which is that we, there are a lot of people where any substance that affects them from the neck up, they, that, that turns their brain on. For me, I mean, sugar does.
1: Right. A hundred percent.
0: Oh my God. It's like, it's wild what it, it does to my brain. Right. So it's really about you know, I think there's a huge chemistry component and it's really, you know, if you, 12 step is, you know, people are, are very orthodox and it is really hard. A lot of people get, you know, turned off, turned away, however you want to say it. I think what is beautiful about what you're doing and where you are is like, look, you're in recovery, you're recovering. And it is not about exactly what that like do you follow my program or their program or this program? It's about, are you, are you happy and healthy? And how did you get there and yeah. how did you do it?
1: Exactly.
0: And, yeah. and we forget, I think because we want, you know, one thing that's scary for a lot of people in 12 step is that if you, and and this is true, like this is, this is true. If you can do it, why can't I do it? If you can drink safe, I want to mm-hmm. have a glass of wine with dinner. Right. I do. I really do, but I, I really can't. And right. so, when you say you you had that pill problem, which you know I love, I took handfuls of pills too, and you say now you can drink, right? Having someone in the group with us that says that it is is difficult for the people who can't do it because they start to question. Well, you know that that it's the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease, right? So,
1: right, exactly, right. I think
0: yeah. what happens a lot of the times is instead of being able to deal with the uncertainty and the you know that that variation it's like we just it's just been made homogenous like if you don't fit into that then then we can't deal with that and it's the same in program when people relapse a lot of the time I mean lots of people who aren't this way but one of the things that that I've seen over time is like, if I have a friend who's sober and they go out, they start drinking again and it works for them, which is, you know, the heart, like people can't be friends with them anymore. And again, these are things that need to change, that we we have forgotten that the point of it all, of every component of it, the therapy, the, the point of it all is to live a happy functioning life. That's it, period, end, stop. And so- Why is it so important other than, you know, that, that camaraderie, right? But why is it so important that we get to decide what that looks like for each other? And I, I just think, I love that you're out there talking about it. And I, I guess my, my question for you is how do you help people go through, like when you're working with people, how do you help people figure out, or how do you address when someone really wants to be sober the way, or I'm sorry, be in recovery the way you are and be able to drink. And it's not, it's, it's not working for them. Like, how do you, how do you work within that, that kind of gray area?
1: Well, so uh, first off, I appreciate the question. And I, th- I think there's a, a story that they sort of illustrates, look, I also struggle with this for a long time. I was sober, straight sober. And I mean, even beyond AA's rules, I I didn't drink coffee, I didn't have sugar for the first couple of years that I was in recovery, because I wanted to give my body and brain the chance to completely reset. And then I slowly started easing back into this. And the the biggest challenge came, I was on a vacation with my uh, family, including my three younger brothers. And one night, my, one of my brothers got his hands on some muscle relaxers and we were all going to hang out. And I said, I can't, I can't do that. And then I got mad at them that they would do that around me. I was only three or four years in recovery at this point. And then I had to stop myself and go, wait a minute. Why? Like, as long as they're not offering it to you, why should you be allowed to tell them not to do this just because you have a problem? (laughs) Like, that, you know, that, that was where it really hit home for me because I was drinking again by this point. I think it was about four years in so I could have a drink with them and then they wanted to do this. And I was like, well, that's not fair guys. And then I stopped and went, well, who am I to say that they can't do that? I don't think it's safe. Don't get me wrong because that shit will fuck you up. But <laughs> if they're going to do it, they should not want to do it for that reason. Not because, you know, big brother Jay can't do it with them. Like that's not fair to them, you know? So to answer your question, first off, I say this time and time again, and I want to be incredibly clear on this. I will never, ever replace your therapist, and I never want to. I am... To your therapist, what a uh, physical trainer is to your doctor. You know, I'm the one in there in the gym with you, spotting you and telling you what to lift. But if your back's hurting, you need to leave me that minute and go to the doctor. I can't help you with that, and I should not be the one that you're coming to. And that's hard for people to wrap their heads around sometimes, especially therapists. I I've got these messages. I save them because I want these for later fuel to the fire. I have therapists who reach out to me and tell me I'm part of the problem. I have therapists who reach out to me and say there's no room for you in this industry because you don't have a Ph.D. And I try to engage some of these people and use that analogy like, well, would you go to your doctor to ask him what you should lift? Like that's that's kind of silly but also I get where they're coming from because if you've been told something for so long and then there are people trying to challenge it it's exactly what you just said and what's like well then why did i just spend 12 years getting a doctorate if i don't really want like there are people i know who have their doctorate to do the work that i do and they're like, I guess I didn't need to do all that. And I get it. I get the, the defensiveness. But I am always very quick to say I will never be your therapist and I don't want to be. I don't want to replace that person. You should be seeing both of us. So in that respect, there needs to be a dialogue. If the person is trying to do something too soon, number one, take some time. Right. Like I said, I didn't even make that decision to try again until I was multiple years into recovery, almost three, if I remember correctly. And I only did so because I was in a very safe environment where if I fell, if there was a relapse of any kind at this point, I knew that there was support there. If you are not in that situation, almost what you were saying earlier, is it worth it? You know what I mean? Like, no one's offering you that trade to trade your worst day in recovery for your best day. But if they were, if they were, that is a 100% on you to make that decision. It's on everybody else in your life to weigh in and give you our opinion. But at the end of the day, you have to make that decision for yourself or what you are willing to risk. And me personally, I felt that I could do so. I was right. Now, I am never going to try pills again i, I it 's just not worth it to me to take that risk. I went to the doctor this would have been about four years ago, three years ago. I was in a car accident, and they took me to the, the hospital because I thought I had a concussion. And the nurse came in and handed me a prescription. I said, I I can't, I can't take that. I'm in recovery for a prescription pill addiction that could kill me. And she was like, I have to give this to you. And I said, no, you really don't. And it'll kill me. You can't give this to me. And it became a thing. And she went and got the doctor and the doctor came in and said, I have to give this to you. I said, you do not. This will kill me. Go the fuck away. And we ended up screaming at each other in this room. He hands me the, the the prescription and I tear it up in front of him. And he says, there, at least I gave it to you. And like, luckily he pissed me off because if he hadn't, what if I walk out of there? And I'm like, "Ah, oh, you know, it could have been fine. Maybe it is, probably it isn't. So that's my own personal choice that I am not willing. Like if I'm in a horrible accident, maybe there's a different calculus to be made that day. But as of right now, if I have a headache, I'll take an Advil. If it gets worse, I'm probably just going to have to deal with that pain because it's not worth the risk of, of backsliding. And so at the end of the day, it's just trying to see how much information you have and making that decision with as much of the information and as much data as you can.
0: I think one of the hard things about the situation you're in is about when your recovery looks different from other people's is that you know one of the biggest components of being sober is community. And having community and ha- having sober support, rec- so rec- not sober support, rec- recovery support, and when you are not accepted into that particular into a community, right? Like, I mean, I know they have Pills Anonymous for. I'm just using that for example. Like, if you're in Pills Anonymous, but you are still able to drink normally they may not accept you into that community because other people can't and whatever. And so then you're left to find your own community, right? And and the thing about 12-step community is that it's easy. It's everywhere. It's built in, you know, and everybody knows the language. It's really, you know, you can just slot yourself in. So as the one thing that you lose by, you know, having that, option to to use at that substance is the ability to easily fit into those communities how have you been able to create recovery community given that you've that it's not a you know that you're not that cookie cutter
1: Well there's a wonderful question I have to applaud you for asking it in a way I get asked that a lot in much more direct <laughs> this is what you're missing kind of of ways of asking that question and it's more trying to push me to admit that that is something I've missed and they're not wrong. I have walked this alone more than I haven't. And I would say the two answers that are first, I tried to have community. AA rejected me twice. They rejected me in Arizona when I was going through it with, with uh, withdrawals. I'm sorry, when I was going through detox. And they basically said, why are you here? And this was because there was no Narcotics Anonymous. They only had AA. And everybody else there was talking about drinking. And I'm like, I'm in the midst of getting off prescription pills. And they were like, why are you here? And so I left that day and never went back. And then the second time when I was living in New York and I was lonely and I started to have thought about prescription pills. And so I sought out an N.A., and I got there. It was in the basement of a church. And again, being Jewish, I was already like, "This is weird." Uh, <laughs> but I went. I went to the basement of this church. It's so like in Midtown Manhattan. I'm sitting there in this basement, and no one shows up. And I sit there for about a half an hour. And then a guy sticks his head in. It, it's the janitor. He goes, "Oh man, nobody comes to these meetings." And then he left. And I was like, "Well, shit. I've now tried uh, AA twice. Both times." They were like, no. (laughs) So part of it was that, like, I did seek it out and it just wasn't there. So I have walked it alone. I have found community, though, by telling my story every chance I get. So, you know, I have made other people. One, I've given people the the freedom to tell theirs. This is my favorite story. I was just telling someone this earlier today. I didn't start talking about being in recovery until I was five years in recovery. I was ashamed of it. I I didn't I had friends who had no idea where I'd gone for a year and a half. They just knew I left. And so I came back and I'm I'm very private about this. And there's a buddy of mine who runs something called Cincy Stories, and it's a it's a storytelling program at Cincinnati where well-known or influential Cincinnatians get up on stage and tell their origin story. And he knew I was in recovery and he was like, will you tell your story? I said, absolutely not. And he, he asked me again, I said, Sean, ain't going to happen, dude, not, not going to happen. Third time I was like, stop asking ain't going to happen. But then I happened to be at home and I told my dad about this and It was this uh, beautiful moment. He's reading the New York Times, and he slowly lowers it. He looks at me and goes, fear is never a good reason not to do something, and then picks up the paper and keeps reading as if he didn't just blow up my entire world. Like, it was (laughs) one line. (laughs) And so... Then I go back to him. That and is say, such
0: a Jewish dad thing to oh, like. So my my dad, like, that's so like where you, they just lob something at you, and you're like, yeah,
1: drop a bomb, and, then and walk out.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Calmly, so I, go, I so I go back to this this guy. I was like, Sean asked me again, and he asked me, and I tell the story, and it goes amazing, and it starts a snowball, and so I'm immediately I'm telling my story more often, and the second time I was invited to do a TED style TEDx event. And I'm at this restaurant where they're doing it, this event-based restaurant. And I tell my story, and I get off stage, and the manager of the restaurant walks over. He says, Would you come with me for a moment? And I said, Okay. So I walk with him, and we go into the kitchen. And it turns out every single member of the kitchen uh, staff was in recovery. And we ended up sitting there for half an hour, 45 minutes, having a mini little group session, all telling our stories, all relating. And we were all bawling. I mean, these are guys like me, you know, your audience can see this, but I'm completely covered in tattoos. We're all sitting there together just like ugly crying, you know, and it's beautiful. And Like, that's how I find community. I find it by, I wear this on my chest. Like, literally, you can see this, but your audience can't. I have my medallion around my neck that says, fuck addiction, circa 2010. I wear this everywhere I go. It actually never leaves my neck. I I bathe with it. I sleep in it. I wear it everywhere I go. I wear bracelets on my wrist that say, you know, choose your struggle, which is my own personal brand, about, look, for a long time, I didn't get to choose what I struggled for, I chose to get off the couch. I chose to avoid withdrawals. Now I get to choose what I struggle for. So that's that's my personal brand. Uh, and that's one of the things I coach people on is how to choose what you want to struggle for in a world that wants you to care about everything. It's so true. And it's exhausting. Yeah. And so I work with people on that. And I just talk about it everywhere I go. I tell my I, I like to say that being in recovery is the first line of my tombstone and the last line of my biography, because I finish everything by saying, you know, Jay Schiffman is a blah, 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 blah. And he's also 10 years in recovery. Right. That's the, the that's there is no anonymous for me. I've never been in the last five years. I was for five years. And since then, I have not been anonymous because I get it. If you are, I 100 percent get it. I empathize. I sympathize. But I'm in a place now where I've realized that I have the privilege of, A, being someone who's getting a second chance in a life where 99% of people don't even get there first, and B, I get to show someone what you think addiction is, is not correct. I lived it. I can tell you about it in a way that will completely change your perspective. It's not just that person that you're picturing, Those two things to me are so much more important than the random person who looks down on me for being in recovery or even the people in recovery who have – I get told all the time that I'm not actually in recovery. I get told all the time that I was never really an addict that's fine. If that's how you have to make, you know, to feel better, dude, I'm with you. I understand. I don't hold anything against you. I'm going to do what I need to do to help other people. If you have to protect yourself that way, I, I feel it, man. I feel it, yeah. do your thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and people should protect them, their recovery, however they need to, you know, that's, that's on that is, you know, on them. But I do think that uh, we have become very closed minded in many ways. And, and we have to think outside the box and, and really push those things. And I will say that, you know, having to create community the way you have to create community would be harder than I would want it to be for me. And like, for me, the ability to, you know, slot into those, you know, that's, that community has made my life a lot easier. And so, you know, frankly, kudos to you for, for what you've, you know, you are, you are choosing your own path in a way that's harder than the rest and still remaining intact. Right. And still saying like, this is what I'm going to do. And this works for me. And I totally, totally respect that.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I will say, look, I am so lucky that I love it. Right. Yeah. If I, you know, I left I I never really got to this, but my career after recovery, I was, I was in fundraising, nonprofit fundraising. I left that to uh, run political campaigns, which I was very good at. And I made a, I made a good amount of money doing, and I left that in February of 2019, because I decided, like I said before, I've got this privilege and I am absolutely wasting it. So that would have been a much harder decision if I didn't absolutely love this. If I didn't love the fact that I get to get up every day and make very little money, but talk <laughs> to people about the two issues that I care about above everything else. And that is addiction and mental health. And I get to work with people and I get to meet awesome people like you and the rest of your team. And like, we get to have these conversations and that is that love and that enjoyment I get is worth the lack of money. Get It's worth the sticky situations I get into Times a million. I mean, I, I can't overstate that. I am. I consider myself so incredibly lucky because I get to do this every day. And the last point I want to make on that is that I. Every, I say this every time because I think it needs to be repeated. In every year, we as Americans lose over a hundred thousand people to addiction and mental health. Just in overdoses and suicide. I'm not even talking about every other cause of death underneath those two headings. Addiction and, I mean, uh, overdose and suicide cost over 100,000 lives a year. If there was another form of preventable death causing that sort of loss of life, there would be riots in the streets calling for change. And yet we are afraid to even have conversations about those topics. Can you I just like that boggles my mind and it hurts me so deeply that that's why I get up and do this every day is that if I can be the little grain of sand that starts that ball rolling to hopefully making that change down the road, it doesn't matter. There's there's an m line where he says something along the lines of like if there's one kid out of 100 million that's going through a struggle and feels that he can relate. That's great. That's me. I don't care. If this doesn't reach a bunch of people, if there's that one person who relates to what I'm talking about and can make a positive change and make a positive difference, done. I've made my difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. And I, I totally agree with you. I was thinking about that as it relates to coronavirus and with addiction, and the numbers for addiction are staggering, right? And everybody's been talking about how many people the flu kills and how many people, you know, all these different things. And I was thinking about, like, what is the difference? And the difference, I think, the people don't think it's, you know, it's not contagious, right? Theoretic. It's genetic, but it's not contagious. And people believe that it's a choice that they opt into. And therefore, you know, and it, that's where the stigma comes in. And I was like, yeah, that's, but the numbers in and of themselves, right, suggest that that addressing that is is such a huge piece of what needs to happen. And I think people are waking up to that.
1: I hope so. I think that, you know, so I'll I'll use a line that I'm writing a book slowly because of this situation we find ourselves in. I've had a bunch of my interviews canceled. That's neither here here nor there. But I'm writing a book on people who are doing incredible work on the front lines of the addiction and mental health uh, epidemic that we're facing right now. And one of the guys I met with is is actually a a police. He's a a sergeant um, or, or a chief who, look, it's amazing It shouldn't be amazing that people are saying we can't arrest our way out of this, but it is, it's even more amazing when it's a policeman. Right. Right. right? And so he was the first person I met with. We actually go way back. because He's from Cincinnati and we, we know each other well, but I met with him and he said, here's the deal. He said, I've pulled over the same people for drunken driving. Nine, 10 times. I have resuscitated people who have tried to kill themselves multiple times. He said, I've brought, you know, I've taken people to the hospital who are on, you know, who are, have lung cancer from smoking and still smoke. Never have I heard the words, let them die. But when it comes to this addiction epidemic, people tell me to let these people die. And he said, I will not do it. And that is the one opinion that I will not let let you have and will not validate. He said, if you think we should arrest them, he said, look, I don't agree with you, but we can have that conversation. If you think every single person should be saved, he said, I'm sorry, I don't agree with that either, but we can have that conversation. He said, but if you tell me to let them die, I'm going to walk away from you. That's the one thing I will not listen to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because people don't think about what it, you know, people think that it's not going to be their loved one or not going to be, you know, you know, you think you're untouchable until, until you experience what that's like. And I've seen that. I've seen you know, up close, the people who thought that they were untouchable. I've seen the, um, you know, there, when I was, uh, when I was in grade school, there was a mother who wouldn't let, um, she stopped speaking to my parents who, who good friends, she, good friends with my parents, stopped speaking to my parents when I let her, you know, girls hang out with us anymore when they had been family friends and, and I was the bad kid and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, 15 years later, you know, her whole life fell apart and her daughter is in recovery who, and I know, you know, and, and, and her other daughters in treatment and, you know, that is like, until it happens to you, you know, you, you make those judgments and, and we're not as untouchable as we think we are.
1: Well, I mean, you, you couldn't be more right. And what, what scares me is that there's still that, there's still that idea, even though we know that addiction is no different than cancer in that respect in that it crosses all the superficial boundaries that we have created for ourselves inside our society you know it's it's not just a poor disease it's not just an enriched I mean there is not a line you can draw that encompasses all people who have struggled with addiction or mental health it's all of us I mean they say that one in five people themselves have struggled with issues of mental health I personally I think it's higher i think those are the ones that have been reported but they also say that one in two people either themselves or knows someone who has now that's a number i can get my mind around and that is terrifyingly high and and if that's the case yes it's great that we're finally starting to have these conversations but let's move beyond it you know i, I was at a, a convention last year in atlanta where President Trump spoke, and we're not going to get political, but I have to bring him up to make a point. And that is that he has released more money to tackle addiction than any other president. And that's because he's released any money to tackle some. And that day at that convention, I asked the organizer, I was volunteering. And so I was helping run the place. And I said, you know, has anyone bothered to ask him, You know, say thank you for this, but also it was like eight. Well, it was nothing. It was no money whatsoever. And can anyone say to him, thank you, but also let's do just a thousand times more than this? And her response is, look, you got to start somewhere. And like, I don't disagree with her. She's not wrong. But also, if someone said, if someone gives you a penny and is like, well, maybe next year we'll give you two. Is that really worth applauding? Or can we go back to them and say, great, you've at least opened the door. Let's tell you now about how, you know, 100 bucks is really what's needed. A thousand dollars. That penny ain't doing shit.
0: Right, right. I, well, I think it's, you know, it, it's two piece where they want to see what they're going to do with it. And, and you know, I do think you have to start somewhere. And I the fact that that's the case, that he's the first is stunning to me. But I also think that, It's not going away. It's getting worse. And so the ability to ignore it and, and, and that's what it takes. You know, it takes people standing up. It takes people of privilege standing up and saying and talking about it and that, and it takes it affecting people in power
1: hundred percent. But what's so scary is that you would think that that would be the, the case, like, like when, when it affects somebody in power. But, uh, there's a guy that I'm interviewing for the book who started, uh, some of the, some of the first quick response teams in the nation. And if for those listeners who don't know what that is, It's the people who go out in the hours or days, depending on your area, after an overdose and try to talk to someone about harm reduction. It doesn't have to be get straight into treatment. It can just be how can we help you use in a safer way? And if you're interested in treatment, let's talk about treatment. And they always drop off Narcan, which by the way, I carry my Narcan literally everywhere I go. I'm using that word correctly. I take it with me on runs when I go running in the morning because God forbid I ever need to use Narcan. I don't have it on me. So I carry my Narcan every day. But he told me about a story of a small town, and I want to say it was West Virginia, where a county commissioner who is a extreme to one side of the, of the political spectrum, I won't say which one, I think you can probably guess, he, unfortunately, his son was the very first person to overdose in that county after the quick response team had started. And so they went out looking for the son and they went to his house. And he called the cops on them and sued them for character assassination and would rather make a show of trying to, to, you know, tamp down on this quick response team even when they were trying to help his son than he would to yeah. look, oh, look yeah. or appear soft on drugs. So, yes – you know, it does need to affect some people in power. I, I hate saying that, but we need to get this idea that it doesn't happen to me or it doesn't happen in my backyard out of this. But we also have to get rid of this mentality that if we just are hard on crime and that the, the war on drugs has been a success, the war on drugs may be the biggest failure in the history of our country. They have the studies that show that drug use has continued upward at the same expected rate, which would mean the war on drugs did exactly zero. To stop anything. And yet we're still doing it because it makes us feel good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a part of the story that is, you know, we get to help, Change the course of how this is talked about, and hopefully affect change. And that's you know we each have to do our part. We each have to stand up and do our part. And you know that's what that's what I'm doing. That's what you're doing by standing up and just doing our part and saying you know this is the deal. They're talking about the fact that drugs are fun and and they kill people and you know like just having those conversations, man, and it can change the course of history. And it's an amazing it's amazing life and it's amazing work we're doing
1: hundred percent. And that's why we have to keep telling our stories, because the more that are out there that challenge convention, the more that make people stop, even if for a second and say, maybe I don't know everything and are willing to make people come to the table and say, let's chat instead of just I know what's best. And even though you lived it, you're wrong. The more we can do that, the more that we have a chance of making a change in this thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Jay, you're amazing. Your story is amazing. I love what you're doing. I, Thank you. I love choose your struggle. Thank um, you. Because guess what? You are gonna struggle, so yeah, might as well participate in it. That's exactly
1: right. We, it, this it's it's the same thing with drugs. It's like we know you're gonna struggle, right? We know it's
0: gonna it, be something.
1: You, live, you are going to struggle. Mm-hmm. Instead of spreading yourself thin, instead of letting other people choose for you, let's choose that. Let's help you make proactive. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's awesome. Check out Jay Schiffman's podcast, Choose Your Struggle. Where else can they find you, Jay?
1: They can find me on my website, Jshiffman.com, and that's J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N. Same thing on LinkedIn and Facebook, just J Shiftman. On Instagram, I'm um, shiftman and on Twitter at JBShiffman.com. And then my book, hopefully, as long as it doesn't get delayed too much because of the coronavirus, will be out next year or the year after if it gets delayed too much. And that's Profiles and Change, which is going to be stories about people doing new and unique and amazing things on the front lines of the fight against the addiction and mental health epidemic that we're currently fighting ourselves in. Awesome.
0: Really awesome. Jay, wonderful to meet
1: you. Well, thank you to you. Thank you to your entire team. I love this podcast. It's uh, it's one of my favorite. I, I told, I was telling someone else in your team that, you know, I just discovered it, uh, back in like september october and since then i've listened to every episode because it's amazing and i love it very i look forward to new episodes whenever every time they come out so thank you so much for doing it thank
0: you thanks jay glad to have you
1: definitely have a great rest of your day and uh keep up the great work sounds good take care choose your struggle
0: thank you bye This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.